Joining us again, and it's always a treat, it's always a delight and a privilege, is the music director of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, Leonard Slatkin. Hello, Leonard. And it's a delight and pleasure to be back with you. Uh, so how was your summer? Not too bad. I had, uh, of course, the tour with DSO to Asia. Yeah. Very successful, outstanding, very hot, very humid. And the heat part continued in all the concert halls as the orchestra just showed off every night and reminded not only new listeners, but those of us on stage, how truly magnificent the orchestra was. And then after that, I headed out to California where Cindy, my wife, uh, was one of the featured composers at the Cabrillo Festival, had a chance to teach a little bit. Uh, then I visited my son in California, my brother in Las Vegas, and then I had a bunch of weeks off. And didn't you, you, had, you had a bunch of weeks off? I did. And what did you do? Did you know what to do? Yeah, I caught up on Game of Thrones. <laughs> really? <laughs> sort of. I got five seasons in. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a pretty ambitious Yeah, summer. I'm joining the House Targaryen immediately. We'll get into, <laughs> we'll get into the, uh, the new season, which uh, launches in just a couple of weeks, not even. Um, but first, I want to talk to you about your book. You have another book out, and I've been reading it, and I've been enjoying it. It's called Leading Tones. Uh, my first question is, who's going to play you in the movie? Michelle Pfeiffer. Well, that'll be a twist. Yeah. So there's a there's a yeah it's all it's all set we just have to get the paperwork done. Okay, I wasn't expecting that, but there you go. Um, the format of the book is a lot like your first book, and I and I find that very uh, uh, appealing. It's a it's a good browsable book, little bits and pieces and snatches here and there. Yeah, it and, wasn't meant as a book where you just start at the beginning and read it through. It's not constructed that way. Rather, it's divided into three sections, the first of which are very much about me and my own career. I try to describe how I paced myself for about 50 years worth of conducting and things I thought I did well and things I thought I didn't do so well. I really have always enjoyed being candid uh, when I write. There you, are, you really are. I mean, well, in your, in your blog and in both of these books, uh, you don't pull any punches on no, yourself. I'm, I'm most of the punch, well, that's exactly right. I feel if I'm going to be critical of anything, I have absolutely no problem, first and foremost, being critical of myself. That's what I am as a musician. When something goes wrong, it's my fault, not anybody else's. And unless I can figure out otherwise, it remains my fault, and I try to correct it for next time. But at 73 years old... There are only so many corrections one can make. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do the best you can. Um, there were several artists that you, you gave special attention to, and one that I, I, I really enjoyed reading about was Ormandy, uh, Eugene Ormandy of the Philadelphia Orchestra, because I don't think a lot of people realize that in addition to being a brilliant conductor, he had a way with words that was like Sam Goldwyn. Oh, he was unbelievable. Or Otto Hemminger was another one like that. He, of course, spoke English, but like many people who come to this country with an inherent language of their own, spoken language, often words would get tied up. So he would say something like, 
Stravinsky wanted this passage to be played short, you know, bup, bup, bup. But he's dead now. Let's play it long. <laughs> Things like that. Uh, so I, I quoted some of them. But I put him in there because he actually was one of the warmest human beings I ever met. When I made my Philadelphia Orchestra debut, he, unlike most music directors, at least of the last 50 years or so, was there to introduce me as he was for so many others. Music directors back then stayed with their orchestras. They didn't do a lot of guest conducting. Mm. It's not like now. And nobody had two orchestras. His was the Philadelphia Orchestra. He also was perhaps one of the most underrated of all conductors. I went to a lot of concerts by the Philadelphia Orchestra and watched rehearsals. I never heard a bad performance from this orchestra, ever, with him. Hmm. And he was also one of the favorites of every soloist, because despite the fact, when you watch a video of him and you say, well, how could they follow that beat? When it came to a concerto, he was as clear and precise as anybody. The sad thing is, he, like so many others, be it uh, Leinsdorf or Steinberg and others, not only do the younger generation not know about them, they don't know who these names are. Really? It's sad. I grew up uh, with those very names, Ormandy, Leinsdorf, not not the way you did. I mean, I I did through recordings, but, but these were stars. And and it happens all the time. I remember another person I portrait a little bit is Nathan Milstein. And when his 100th birthday came up about four years ago, was it, whenever it was, you talked to young violinists, and they really didn't know him. They didn't know his name. They didn't know his importance in the field, what he did. It's Maybe it is a, a two-generational thing that after a while you're not remembered in the same way, but at least we have the recordings to give us a rough idea, and Anybody who is a musician not only needs to hear these things, it's mandatory to understand how we have changed and how music has evolved over now a couple of centuries. Well, there are numerous stories in the book that uh, uh, give you insight into folks like Nathan Milstein and Ormandy and and John Williams. John is the only living person I put in. But that had more of a, that's the one chapter that has a little bit of a connection to the first book in that he's directly related to the family because when Johnny Williams first arrived in L.A., he was just the studio pianist, and my parents took him under their wings and helped him develop. He became a writer for television, then he became, of course, the John Williams that we all really know. But we were always, and still do, pity each other a lot. I admire his intellect. He's the person you go to, as my son does, when you want to learn about how do you score a film. He's uh-huh. the person you talk to. There's a story, an anecdote you relate when uh, John Williams is talking about your mother, Eleanor, who was a cellist in the studio. Yeah. In fact, the last uh, set of recordings she did as a studio musician was with John, and it was for uh, Jaws. And every so often, whenever I had John conduct somewhere, and I happen to be present, even apparently when I'm not present, he does it, he'll say that my mother was the person to play. And then he remarks to the audience that 
Leonard's mother was scaring audiences for however many years. And if I'm in the audience, I just shoot back to John. My mom was scaring everybody way before that. <laughs> My guest is Leonard Slatkin. His new book is called Leading Tones, which is available at Good Books. I should explain everywhere. the title. Yeah. Because one person thought it was silly that I read anyway. I tend not to care so much about that. And that means that's the person who doesn't understand the second, or to my mind, the first meaning of the phrase. Leading tones, if you just look it out on the bare bones, means, okay, I'm conducting music. That's what it roughly would say. But the real meaning is that it is a device in music, which is the note and or the chord that comes before the resolution or the beginning of the next phrase. So the title has to do with understanding that things come to an end, but they also continue after that. Uh-huh. So that's what the meaning is. As you as you get ready to move into a new chapter. Right. And uh, uh, we, one of the things you mentioned in the book is that you'll be doing uh, guest conducting. And yes. um, Some people think I'm retiring, and I'm not. This is, of course, my final uh, season with the DSO. I just completed last year my directorship in Lyon after six wonderful years. In fact, I just came from France and as a guest conductor, I'm the chef honoraire. Ah, nice title. Very nice. And here I'll be the music director laureate. So I do see these orchestras. I want to cut back to about 28, 30 weeks of conducting a year just as a guest. I find at this point the world of music has changed so much, especially the administrative part, that it's time for others to take over and look at it in a new direction. And so the rest of the book, or a great deal of the rest of the book, has to do with some flaws that I see out there. And this, of course, is the controversial and provocative part. So I deal with the audition process the way I see it, which is not the way a lot of musicians see it. I deal with the problem or the plus of journalists and the impact they can have on careers and how words do have a meaning and impact. I don't care if somebody tears me apart for performance. I really don't because I'm going to be more critical of that than they could ever be. Hmm. But as a person writing or commenting, you have to get your facts right. If you don't get your facts right, you open yourself up and very few musicians are willing to take that on. And I decided at this point, why shouldn't I? I don't envy them. And I think for the most part, the critics who write about us get it right about 90% of the time. But when they're wrong, it's usually it's wrong about a fact. And so I cite some examples there, but I also cite what I think the responsibility of the music journalists should be and the things that as musicians, we would like to see them tell them, including using... Two words very rarely seen in a review, and that's, I thought. Yeah, you have the byline, of course. But as you're reading, the general readership sort of assumes you're speaking on behalf of the audience, and you're not. So that's important. There's a chapter about labor relations. Uh, used. I didn't use the Detroit Symphony as the example. I used Minnesota. And that has become a little point of contention with some, but... I can tell you that all during their lockout, 
I was in touch with two current members of the orchestra plus one former. I consulted with three executive directors and others in the field to make sure that what I was saying was not incorrect and that I looked at it from a different point of view. What kind of impact, especially in light of what happened in 2008 with the economy, did this have on the arts? And it wasn't just us. It wasn't just Minnesota. It was so many other orchestras, and it will continue to be. This is a problem where both boards, managements, and members of the orchestra need to figure out how they come together as a unit. And I try to provide a few ideas that at least could be the framework for discussion as we go forth. And there's also a tied-in chapter that has to do with a problem facing music directors as well as anybody running an arts institution, and that is fiscal responsibility versus artistic vision. Well, obviously they shouldn't be versus, but sometimes it is that way. I might have a fantastic idea I want to do, and then I can't do it because the money's not there to do it. So am I compromising myself by giving up on it? How do I work around it? How do others do it? And I cite examples of people who've accomplished it well, and I cite examples where it's very questionable as to the end result. So these are the few places where observational writing came into play. And I suspect I'll be doing a bit more of that kind of thinking as I move forward with whatever career this happens to be in book writing or journalism or website stuff. I don't know. We'll see. You mentioned the uh, the audition process, the, the, the section on... Uh, Susan, I think it was yeah, the name. Of I wrote it. it as a short story. I, I, that reads like a thriller. That is really a. a well, I wanted to take section. the readership. We've seen uh, many articles by musicians and their own personal feelings. Uh, for me, I wanted to look at it in the point of view of how do I see the audition process unfold. So the way I did it was to take fictional Susan, who's just graduated from her music school studies, and she decides she wants to audition for an orchestra. So I take the reader through Susan on her journey and what she will encounter as she goes through this process and how the process unfolds. There, are, I do move away from the book and storytelling part by interjecting where I think there are problems and Laws. And there is no perfect solution for an audition. There just isn't. Uh, and having just been the head of the jury for the Clyburn competition and now the conducting competition at Besançon, I came away with an even more detailed feeling of what being a competitor is like in the music field. I never had to do that. I avoided them. I despised the idea of music as sports. Or as Bartok said, music is for or competitions are for horses. Yeah, uh, and I want to give a little more emphasis on what the musicians auditioning can do to show us themselves at their best. And that includes playing in front and being seen by the people who are listening to you. Currently, the majority of orchestras in this country and many in Europe put a screen up, a barrier between what's on stage and what is being heard by the members sitting in the audience. That started back in the 70s as an anti-discriminatory 
gesture, and we understood that, and it was probably necessary. But I think these days, things have changed now, just the makeups of our orchestras, the way we think, the way we do. I, I really don't think we have to deal with this as an issue anymore. And mainly, for me, the biggest problem is that a committee which has no information, just given the number of the person who's auditioning, and that's it, is candidate number four would like to, is going to start with the Sibelius Violin Concerto. Fine. But we don't know anything about them. We don't know their experience level. With orchestras having been out of work for so long, clearly members went and auditioned for other orchestras, including members of the DSO. But if you go to a blind audition, I would, I would weigh and factor in experience sometimes as a mitigating factor to selecting someone. I think it does count. The new season of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra with uh, some new musicians and, yes, some, five new ones. and some veterans uh, begins uh, a week from Thursday on October 12th in Orchestra Hall. Although they are up and playing now with various They're playing things. all the time. Yeah. Um, and there's the, a transition from the book into the season is a list of pieces you like to conduct. And one of them shows up on the opening program. Yes. I debated if I wanted to try it, but I can tell you that among the questions, maybe even at the very top of those that musicians truly can't stand is after a concert, somebody comes back and you're talking What's your favorite piece to conduct? <laughs> and none of us can answer that. We can't. My line now, after all these years, is fortunately I get to conduct primarily pieces I know and love, and that's my favorite at the moment. I can, though, give an answer to who's my favorite composer. My wife. That's an easy answer. <laughs> I never had that option. Of course. Until seven years ago. Uh, but I can and did write about 10 pieces which give me absolutely the greatest pleasure as a conductor. Doesn't mean I think they may be the best pieces ever written, but there's something about them that just opens me up as a conductor. And in many cases, these pieces are not the obvious. For example, there's not a Mahler symphony in there. Of course I love Mahler, but it's not exactly the same thing as conducting the Eroica, which is on the opening week's program. The Eroica, you're confronted with a piece of history that shook and changed the world of music in a way that only a few other pieces did. We could say the Prelude to Tristan would be one, Afternoon of Fond of Debussy would be another, the Fantastique might be one, Rite of Spring, which is also on the season, that could be one. But as a conductor, no Brahms symphony for me. Nope, the first serenade. There's a moment in the Slowwood, and when I talk to musicians who know the piece, they go, oh, you mean that circle of fifths in the Slowwood? And I, they all light up, and they say, yes, or for an opera. For me, it's not going to be a Wagner opera. It's not going to even be Puccini. It's going to be L'Enfant et les Sortilèges of Ravel, which is 45 minutes of sheer perfection all the way through. Everything about it is just so wonderful to lead. And... These are pieces that just give a different kind of satisfaction than, say, conducting a full Beethoven cycle. Well, the Eroica is an occasion anytime. Yeah. Uh, but for an opener, that's uh, obviously a great selection. But uh, anytime 
Olga Karen comes to town, you know, the, the people talk about lighting up a room. She really does. It really does. And we've talked about this for many years now, and I'm glad she finally took up my suggestion. She's playing the great piano concerto of Samuel Barber. That was written, of course, for the opening festivities at Lincoln Center and was premiered by John Browning and the Boston Symphony. And John and I would go on to record the piece. Second recording with him, he'd made the first one shortly after the premiere with Cleveland. And it's interesting now because RCA has just reissued all of the RCA recordings of John Browning, including some unreleased, and they put in both versions of The Barber. It's very cool. But I can now have a pianist who I work with on a regular basis and say, now I don't want you to play it like John played it, but here, John used to do this, and I want to show you that, and let her, and the other pianist who I really respect and does it wonderfully now is uh, Garrick Olson. But uh, this is a, such an important piece, and it's so good to see some of the big pianists now taking it up. Well, and that's something that you've been identified with, that is uh, American composers and contemporary uh, music. You're a champion of it. Yeah, in fact, this year, for the 10th year, I wanted to do something different. I wanted the opening concert to be reflective of many aspects of my career. I'm not going to say that so much to the audience. But we did commission seven pieces for the 10th year. And there's an eighth one that had already been scheduled. Of, in the seven, instead of going to my usual suspects, and that means composers who I've been associated with for my career, like a Joe Schwantner or Corleano or John Adams, Joan Tower, whoever it happened to be. I asked them each to pick either a current or former student and have them each write a piece between seven and ten minutes long so I would be introduced to the next generation who succeed them. And so I'm calling them Leonard's generation next. And <laughs> we have, I know already for the first two weeks, because I've been studying and know the scores, the first two pieces are really terrific, really good. And I'm hoping that we jumpstart some careers here. Well, the, the, the looking through the schedule, and by the way, you, you should go to dso.org if you haven't already gotten a, a season schedule and uh, and check it out because there's a lot of great concerts. Yeah, wonderful. And, and yeah. another thing to do this year is, let me interrupt, but remember, it's my 10th year, but it's also my final one as the music director. That means... Almost any conductor who comes when I'm not here could be your next music director. And that's uh -huh. an exciting time for an orchestra and for its audience. Who's that next person to galvanize? What can they do to change the things that we have accomplished? And for the better, there's much work to be done here, a lot. And I'm hoping whoever is selected, and I have no part in the process, is someone really willing to take the chances and move the orchestra and the board and the management in a direction that really continues the growth that we began almost 10 years ago. You really have no part in the process? Zero. Not even advisory? Nope. Not, 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 a, not a good idea. Uh, it happened a couple times. I know that uh, Ormandy picked Muti to succeed him, and the orchestra agreed, and Chicago picked Barenboim to succeed Schulte with Schulte's blessing, and I certainly will be more than happy to endorse the next candidate. I hope. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, but 
I, I think this is a decision to be made really by the orchestra and everybody else involved in the administration. The only thing I would advise is to not be somebody who does what I do. Don't, don't look for somebody to be my successor. Look for somebody to bring something different. Mm. My guest is Leonard Slatkin. Uh, we're heading into his final season as music director of the orchestra, but but don't be a stranger. You'll be coming back. Oh, I'm back four weeks every year. Yeah, well, there you go. And, next, and the first one after next season, or this season, is a, a five-week stint. I was very happy to see some Rachmaninoff on the schedule. I love your Rachmaninoff in November. And although Mahler didn't make your, your top ten list, he is on He's the schedule. With, You're doing the Mahler ninth. The ninth in December. I've done, I guess, about five Mahler symphonies here. Maybe, yeah. We were supposed to, to do the eighth in Ann Arbor. That didn't work out. So I didn't do, what, six, seven, or eight. So, But nine is one that, after all these years, you, you need to have an orchestra where you're completely comfortable with their flexibility. Hmm. And now that we've done so much music by that composer, and we seem very at home in the language, with me anyway, it seemed like the right piece to play in the last year. So the Mahler Ninth will be, for me, one of the highlights, of course. Stephen Huff is coming in yep. January. Is there, well, I I really like Stephen Huff. I do too. I mean, is, is there a better pianist on the planet? There may be some as good, but... I'm not going to try to answer that. Yeah, I know. Because I get too much it's, trouble. It's not a fair. <laughs> but. And then we have the French Festival. Oh, yeah. In and February. This is a breakaway from what we've done in the past. We had the Beethoven, we had the Brahms, the Tchaikovsky, the Mozart last year. Now you're getting to the point of running out of composers where you can do a whole festival for three weeks. <laughs> well, there's Cindy McTee. There he is, but she didn't write enough to substantiate three weeks of a festival. Ah, gee whiz. Sin, get on. Yeah, Cindy, come on. Do it. Uh, and I wanted to do something that tied me to my other orchestra in Lyon. So the French festival seemed like a fun way to do it. It also gives us, more than the others with the single composers, the ability to have more flexibility in the ancillary events, events that could be tied into the DIA, into mm. part of the Alliance Française that is here, into... Uh, Elements of the French culture. We could have French cabaret nights. We can have chamber music all over the place. I see you've got can-can dance. We do, because in Jacques Offenbach's, well, it's not his ballet, but the put-together ballet by Manuel Rosenthal, Gaete Parisien, the can-can, which is from Orpheus in the Underworld. You guys know what we do call it on the stage, don't you? (laughs) Orpheus in his underwear. Oh. Yeah. Uh, We have a lot of titles like that. So That's another book. uh, It is. Or chapter, anyway. You know my favorite one of that? The aggression. You ready, everybody? Get ready to chuckle. Takes a second to kick in. The Schweins of Rome by Roast Piggy. <laughs> Terrible. Oh, that's... Terrible. Uh, okay. Anyway. That was... Prelude to the afternoon of a prawn. That's nice. <laughs> so, we have all these pieces. And the can-can appears in the Gaete Parisienne. And I'm not sure the process. We'll have that worked out in a few days. But we will have a line of can-can dancers. Why not? I can't. I can't and Carnival wait. Animals is in there, and the Saint-Saëns Third Symphony, and uh, even some new music by French composers. It's great It's going to be great fun. And Turandot at the end of the season? Well, I thought 
if I'm going to go out, I'm going to do this in almost the biggest way possible. We had such great success with the presentation of our operas so far, whether it was Salome or Tosca. I really wanted to do Turndot. I've done it often, both staged and not. It works extremely well as a concert piece because really not much happens in terms of action on the stage. It's, it's pretty static opera. There are little things you can do. I mean, we're not going to have somebody run up the stairs and hit the gong. That's not going to happen. But there's a children's chorus, there's brass bands, there's this glorious music, possibly the most famous aria in all of opera, Nessun Dorma, is in it. And it is so much fun to conduct. And when you hear a really great orchestra playing this sumptuous score out of the pit, you realize what a master and genius Puccini was in virtually every respect. And for those of you who are operaphiles, we're not doing the entire completed version that Alfano did, and I'm certainly not doing the Barrio third act. I did that once and I didn't like it. So we'll do the somewhat abbreviated Alfano ending, which I think is appropriate for a concert performance. The season begins officially a week from Thursday on October 12th in Orchestra Hall. And again, it's jam-packed with great opportunities to hear great music with great artists. Uh, my guest has been Leonard Slatkin. Information at dso.org. Uh, check it out now. Get the tickets while you can. It's been a hell of a decade, Leonard. It really has. And look how far we came. And I cannot thank all of you enough here at WRCG. I know I'll see you as the season rolls along. But your support and the support of all the listeners over these years has been truly inspiring to me. I tried to listen to you as people who care about the arts in our community. And I hope I've been able to give something back as well. So when it comes around to pledge time, Uh, please know that the station has my support. And I want to make sure all of you out there continue to do that because the partnership of WRCGA to this community is something that needs to continue on a level that places the arts front and center in terms of the regrowth, renaissance, and rebirth, if you will, of our great city. Thank you so much, Leonard. Thank you. Don't be a stranger.
Thank you.